So today is our first podcast on antimicrobial stewardship general principles. We have three learning objectives. One, to identify which clinical features generally point to safe oral step-down for patients with infections. Two, compare the clinical features that point to antibiotic failure versus a source control issue versus non-infectious mimickers in a patient with apparent antibiotic non-response. And three, to apply knowledge of these principles to two patient cases. So you can tell from our learning objectives for this podcast that we're going to be focusing on some very general principles that are applicable to any setting where we have suspected infection. First, let's talk quickly about the dogma that IV antibiotics are superior to oral antibiotics, which has dominated clinical practice for 50 plus years. In practice, everyone assumes that IV is more effective than oral, but recent data has challenged this. The preference for oral therapy actually all started initially from case reports in the 1940s and 1950s. Then review articles by experts in the field in the 1950s to 1970s cemented that practice, and the superiority of IV over oral therapy was sort of established as dogma. In 2022, with our emphasis on evidence-based medicine, these case reports and expert review articles wouldn't be enough to solidify a practice in the world of medicine. But back then, when antibiotics were a fairly new concept, it's understandable that case reports and case series drove practice. Intuitively, we know that there are many limitations to these early small studies and case series from a methodology standpoint. But there are some additional relevant limitations to the data to consider as well. For instance, the antibiotics used in those studies are no longer used much in clinical practice. We also have more advanced diagnostic imaging to identify source control issues and other complicating features that may have previously led to treatment failure. And we have more studies and modeling techniques that have helped us optimize antibiotic dosing. All of this helps us be confident that the old data is no longer all that applicable. And as antibiotic resistance has become an increasingly prevalent problem, there's been increased focus on using oral antibiotics and early oral step-down. Over the past several decades, we have accumulated a lot of data showing that oral step-down is reasonable for most infections once we have clinical improvement, especially in gram-negative infections like pyelonephritis, intra-abdominal infections, post-source control, and gram-negative bacteremias of various sources. So while bacteremia historically scared people away from oral agents, we have been comfortable for some time stepping gram-negative bacteremia patients down to oral antibiotics, knowing that gram-negatives don't have the same predisposition for complications compared to gram-positive organisms. And now we also have some recent studies over the past couple of years that have shown that even in serious gram-positive infections, oral antibiotics may have a place. Two landmark studies worth mentioning are Oviva and Poet. Both of these studies evaluated the use of oral antibiotics in infections where previously we would have only used long-term IV treatment. Oviva was a large study from 26 centres in the UK with over 1,000 participants that looked at oral therapy in bone and joint infections. The historic practice had been six weeks of IV therapy for osteomyelitis and four weeks for native joint infections. The study demonstrated non-inferiority of oral antibiotics in this setting, although the regimens they used were quite varied. And similarly, the POET study was a study in Denmark of 400 patients with left-sided endocarditis. And this showed that early oral step-down was reasonable in many patients with left-sided endocarditis from streptococcus, staph aureus, or coagulase-negative staph species. This practice hasn't fully taken off yet in North America, but it was a well-conducted study that again just highlights that our historic feeling of these patients need prolonged IV treatment may not be supported by our current data. And now we have a recent systematic review published in April of this year. And if you're interested in reviewing it for yourself, you can see the references attached to the podcast. The systematic review looked at data in osteomyelitis, bacteremias, and endocarditis. This study suggested that oral step-down was reasonable in all of these settings based on the evaluated data. So this systematic review added to the literature encouraging oral antibiotics across a variety of settings. And it furthers our confidence that for the vast majority of patients across a variety of situations, oral step-down is reasonable and supported by our evidence. Now we should just quickly touch on the small subset of patients for whom oral step-down may not be appropriate. 
There are a few situations where oral therapy may be a no-go. One example is in settings where the patient may be unable to adequately absorb oral antibiotics, like septic shock, where blood is shunted away from the GI tract, and where we can't afford a leg for the antibiotic to hit a therapeutic level. Additional examples where absorption may be compromised is inflammatory GI conditions where the microvilli are damaged, as well as patients with excessively rapid GI transit time who may not have adequate time to absorb oral medications. Another situation that may limit us to IV antibiotics is when our susceptibility results don't have any viable oral options, such as with pseudomonas. If pseudomonas is resistant to ciprofloxacin, the only oral agent that covers pseudomonas, we will be limited to IV therapy. Yeah, this happens sometimes with our more resistant gram-negatives, where we're pretty limited by susceptibility results. One final setting where we wouldn't ordinarily use oral antibiotics is in certain cases of gram-positive bacteremia, specifically Staph aureus bacteremia. We have some new data now suggesting oral step-down may be reasonable after a couple of weeks of IV antibiotics in Staph aureus endocarditis, as mentioned in the POET trial, which is an update from previous practice. But we haven't evolved to adopt this yet in North America, and we haven't yet identified confidently which patients may be best suited to this practice. Without input from our infectious diseases team at this time, we would still never suggest oral antibiotics for Staph aureus bacteremia. But in the absence of some of these special circumstances, data suggests that for most infections, we can safely use and step down to oral therapy. So to summarize, for less serious infections and gram-negative infections, including bacteremia, our data shows that we can use oral therapy and or step down to oral therapy very proactively in most patients if there are no contraindications like short gut. For the majority of more serious infections, oral therapy may be considered once the patient has demonstrated clinical improvement. And finally, with staph aureus bacteremia, oral step-down is still generally precluded, and we are going to touch on that further in a later podcast on bacteremia. So that brings us to a quick discussion of gauging clinical improvement. This is sort of intuitive, but generally we just look at both objective and subjective markers and see if they're going in the right direction on antibiotics. So we look to see if the patient is defervesced or fevers have become lower magnitude and more spaced out. We look to make sure inflammatory markers are decreasing at the expected rate, like neutrophils and CRP. And in many cases, although not all infections, we also confirm that localizing symptoms are improving. For example, with pneumonia, we look that oxygen requirements are coming down. All right, so a quick quiz. Which of the following would be appropriate for oral step-down, assuming no issues with oral absorption? 1. A 38-year-old female on day 3 of ceftriaxone for community-acquired pneumonia with white blood cells of 18, ongoing fevers, and on oxygen at 5 liters a minute. 2. An 89-year-old male on day 7 of cefazolin for staph aureus bacteremia who is now afebrile for the last 4 days and has improving inflammatory markers. 3. A 68-year-old male on day 4 of ceftriaxone for Klebsiella bacteremia secondary to ascending cholangitis 24 hours after successful ERCP with improving bilirubin levels and no fevers since just after the procedure. 4. An 86-year-old female on day 2 of ceftriaxone for community-acquired pneumonia with white blood cells decreasing. Last documented fever was 38.1 the preceding afternoon. So the first patient still has moderately high oxygen demands and ongoing fevers and elevated inflammatory markers. So we wouldn't be looking at stepping her down just yet. Patient 2 has a staph aureus bacteremia. So as per current practice, we wouldn't step him down to oral. Patient 3 has had successful source control and is improving. So that's a patient we would step down to oral therapy. And patient 4 again sounds as though she's improving, so she's another one that we could step down to oral antibiotics. So this segues nicely into what do we do with patients who seem like they aren't improving? This was a common reason that we were consulted on ID service. Teams would have patients being treated for infections, and yet the patients wouldn't be improving as expected. And often these patients would be brought into bigger gun antibiotics or would have received multiple antibiotic courses. But when we have a patient who's failing to improve, we need to make an evaluation for what our diagnosis is of that failed improvement. 
And the way we do that is we first look at the clinical course and what we refer to in this podcast as the pattern of the non-improvement. What I mean by this is looking at clinical course and distinguishing between three patterns, progressive deterioration, consistent stagnation, so no change on antibiotics at all, and finally, an initial improvement that then becomes a plateau. By making that assessment, this can help us discern the cause of the lack of perceived improvement. Because really, our differential diagnosis for non-improvement is three main causes, and the clinical course and pattern to the non-improvement helps us distinguish which one it is. Our differential is basically true antibiotic failure, a non-infectious mimicker of infection, or a source control issue. And there are some differences in presentation that can point us to one over the other. Okay, first let's talk about antibiotic failure, patients for whom we have failed to cover the pathogen causing their infection in the first place. For most patients, if we have missed covering the pathogen causing their infection, they will progressively deteriorate. Failing to cover the causative pathogen for an acute infection like pyelonephritis or pneumonia should see the patient getting progressively worse with respect to localizing symptoms and rising inflammatory markers. So if we have a patient progressively deteriorating, then we would consider broadening therapy and worry that we had missed a pathogen. And that would be our first concern in this setting. But at the same time, if we have progressive deterioration not responding to antibiotics, in some situations we would also have to consider aggressive autoimmune conditions or other non-infectious mimickers, since some autoimmune conditions especially may present with that same progressive deterioration and ongoing elevated inflammatory mediators. So now let's consider those non-infectious mimickers. There are two potential patterns of antibiotic non-response that could point to a potential non-infectious mimicker. One we've already mentioned, progressive deterioration. This could be consistent with an autoimmune mimicker or something like acute sterile pancreatitis, where the patient has a robust inflammatory response and fevers, but isn't actually infected. But more commonly in practice, we query a non-infectious mimicker when we have a patient who has just stagnated on antibiotics with neither improvement nor deterioration. For example, a patient with fatigue, respiratory symptoms, and a possible consolidation on chest x-ray who doesn't improve clinically after 72 hours of antibiotics. This could be heart failure, which is mistaken for pneumonia frequently in practice, a malignancy, or a host of other mimickers. So the pattern that points most strongly to a non-infectious mimicker is a consistently stagnating patient, a patient who never responded when antibiotics were initiated but also did not deteriorate. This is especially true if the patient never had a systemic inflammatory response accompanying their localizing symptoms. For example, if something appeared initially to be consistent with possible infection, there is no fever, no elevated neutrophils, and no elevated inflammatory markers. For instance, if a patient presented to clinic and is diagnosed with suspected mild cellulitis, which has, by definition, no systemic features of infection, but then failed to show any objective improvement after several days of antibiotics. This could point to stasis dermatitis or a non-infectious cause of the appearance. Infectious processes will generally have an inflammatory response, and the absence of one coupled with non-response to antibiotics is a pretty good hint that we should consider potential non-infectious causes, even if the localizing symptoms are initially convincing for infection. So that is probably the pattern of antibiotic non-response that prompts us most obviously to query a non-infectious mimicker. A more challenging example of the stagnating patient is when that patient has consistently had elevated inflammatory markers, but these have been stable and unaltered by antibiotics. Common causes of this picture include an autoimmune process or malignancy. So if we have a patient who's not responding but has elevated inflammatory markers consistently, we should query these sorts of non-infectious mimickers. So basically, if we have a patient who's progressed rapidly, we should query antibiotic failure versus less commonly a non-infectious mimicker. If we have a patient who's stagnated consistently on antibiotics, no improvement, no decline, we should query potential non-infectious mimicker. What about those patients you mentioned who improved initially on antibiotics but then stagnated? This would be a pattern of antibiotic non-response that would not be in keeping with a non-infectious mimicker since the initial response to antibiotics points to an infection. 
Similarly, this pattern would point away from antibiotic failure because if we had failed to treat the bug causing the infection, we would expect progressive deterioration like we talked about already. So if the patient improves initially and then stagnates, this points most plausibly to a source control issue. The patient improved, so we know we covered the causative bug, but now they've stopped improving, so we know we've got a problem. This points to an abscess or a deep-seated infection that might need drainage. We can distinguish this from antibiotic failure because if we had truly missed the bug, for example, treated pneumonia with ceftriaxone and the pathogen was MRSA, we should never have observed an initial objective improvement. We should have watched the patient consistently progressively decline. If we observe a decisive initial improvement, it means we've covered the offending pathogen, and at that point, a source control issue becomes high on the differential. We can distinguish this from non-infectious mimickers because, as mentioned, if they had an initial response to antibiotics, this would suggest that there was initially a true underlying infection. So this pattern of improve and then stagnate is pretty characteristic of a source control issue. The big take-home here is when you are confronted with a patient who isn't improving on antibiotics, always think through characterizing your patient's lack of perceived improvement, because that really is the hint to the underlying cause. Is your patient progressively deteriorating? Is your patient consistently stable just with no response to antibiotics? Or did your patient truly improve and then stagnate? And then consider your differential, antibiotic failure versus non-infectious mimicker versus a source control issue. Okay, so now we're on our final learning objective of this podcast. Apply the knowledge that we've just reviewed to several patient cases. Patient case one. Mr. K is an 81-year-old male who presents to emerge with worsening shortness of breath over the last 48 hours, productive cough of dark green sputum, tactile fevers at home with chills, weakness, and malaise. On exam, he is visibly fatigued and is requiring 4 liters per minute of oxygen to maintain SATs at 95%. He's hemodynamically stable but febrile with a temp of 39.3. Labs show elevated white blood cells at 21.8, neutrophil predominant, an elevated CRP of 273, and an acute kidney injury with serum creatinine up to 143, having been previously normal. Labs are otherwise unremarkable. For diagnostic imaging, chest x-ray shows dense right middle lobe and right lower lobe consolidation with mild blunting of the costophrenic angle. You start him on ceftriaxone for community-acquired pneumonia and IV fluids for suspected acute kidney injury. Over the next two days, his acute kidney injury resolves and his inflammatory markers show some improvement, with white blood cells down to 19.3 and CRP down to 200. His Tmax over 24 hours is 37.9 and he endorses no longer experiencing chills. 48 hours later, while the patient has defervesced after four days of treatment, you notice that his inflammatory markers have not continued to improve. His CRP is 188, and his white blood cells are 16, and both have plateaued. You're concerned that your patient is no longer responding to antibiotics. So to summarize, we have a patient who presented with fever and elevated inflammatory markers in the context of respiratory symptoms. He seemed to respond to antibiotics, but now he seems like he's no longer responding. So my first question is, is this antibiotic failure? And the second question is, what are your next steps? So question one, is this antibiotic failure? Well, first, let's characterize this non-response. Do we have progressive deterioration? Neither deterioration nor response, so just sustained stagnation. Or do we have a patient who responded initially and then stagnated? Well, we've identified already that we had an initial response. The patient's fevers improved and became lower grade, and inflammatory markers initially came down and then stagnated. So this wouldn't point to antibiotic failure because we didn't see that progressive decline that we would expect if we failed to cover the causative pathogen. We can be reasonably confident that we covered the causative pathogen because we saw that initial response. But now we're worried with the sustained inflammation and stagnation that the patient may be hiding a source control issue, like an abscess or a paranemonic effusion. So this leads us to question two. What are our next steps? Well, we've identified that we're worried about a source control issue. This isn't antibiotic failure, so we don't need to change antibiotics. 
Our next step is to identify the source control issue. We can start with a repeat chest x-ray because this is lower dose radiation and can help identify effusions. The patient did have some mild blunting of the claustrophrenic angle on the initial imaging, and it's possible that this has progressed. Following chest x-ray, if an effusion large enough to explain the symptoms is present, we can consider tapping the effusion and sticking a drain in for source control. If there's no effusion present, and in many cases, even if an effusion is present, we would consider a CT to evaluate for abscess or help characterize the effusion. The point is, our next step is to evaluate for the source control issue that we're suspecting based on the clinical presentation, so that we can make a plan to manage the source control issue. So to summarize, in case one, we've identified our pattern of non-response. We had a clinical improvement and then stagnation suggestive of a source control issue. Because of this, we ruled out antibiotic failure, so we didn't broaden antibiotics, and we identified that we needed to further evaluate the suspected source control issue with imaging. Now on to case two. Patient case two. Mrs. LC is a 34-year-old female, otherwise healthy, who had presented to emerge four days ago with abdominal pain and tactile fever. She has no past medical history of note. On arrival, temperature was 37.9, and she was mildly hypotensive and mildly tachycardic. She reported her pain as a 7 out of 10. Inflammatory markers were modestly elevated, white blood cells were up to 14, and CRP was 215. She is in acute kidney injury. Serum creatinine was up to 265. Lactate was normal. Her urinalysis had shown white blood cells, red blood cells, and red blood cell casts, as well as 1 plus protein. Her urine culture was negative. You received this patient on your service on day 4 of ceftriaxone for suspected pyelonephritis, at which time she is hemodynamically stable, but still has equivocal low-grade temperatures. Her serum creatinine remains elevated at 284. Inflammatory markers do not seem to have come down appreciably. White blood cells remain elevated at 13. CRP is still elevated at 198. She continues to experience abdominal pain. You order a CT, which is pending. So this time, we have a patient who came in with elevated inflammatory markers and potential low-grade fevers, who's now on day four of antibiotics. She doesn't seem to have had much of a change in her clinical picture. So, is this antibiotic failure? Okay, so let's again go through our differential diagnosis for a patient who seems to be not responding to antibiotics. And this might be repetitive, but again, we start by first characterizing the pattern of the non-response. So this patient has had low-grade fevers with elevated inflammatory markers. Despite four days of treatment for a suspected pyelonephritis, she's shown no change in any of her inflammatory markers. So she seems to be neither deteriorating or responding, and is just having a sustained stagnation. So we aren't seeing the progressive deterioration that we would expect with antibiotic failure. And similarly, it doesn't seem like a source control issue up front, because we didn't see an initial response with subsequent stagnation. We just saw straight stagnation and no response whatsoever. Then that leaves a mimicker of infection. Now we need to look at her presentation to see if anything points to a particular mimicker. Our patient is a young female with a positive urinalysis, elevated inflammatory markers, low-grade temperatures, and an acute kidney injury that has not responded to fluids despite improved vitals and not being dramatically hypotensive on arrival. Urinalysis points to a potential renal cause of her acute kidney injury with significant red blood cells and red blood cell casts, and not a pre-renal cause. At this point, we would be concerned about an infectious mimicker, such as an autoimmune disorder, which would produce sustained inflammation and could explain the intrarenal acute kidney injury and her abdominal pain. Right, so this last one seems most in keeping with a mimicker of infection. So we would get urgent nephrology and rheumatology support for this patient. So to conclude, our take-homes for this podcast are, one, we have growing data supporting use of oral antibiotics for even serious infections. The majority of patients being treated for infection can be stepped down to oral therapy once they've improved clinically. Two, features suggestive of clinical improvement include decreasing inflammatory markers like white blood cells and CRP, reduced magnitude and frequency of fevers, and in many cases, improved localizing symptoms. Three, when we have a patient who is not improving on antibiotics as expected, we should discern whether the patient has continued to deteriorate, 
neither deteriorated nor responded or responded and then stagnated. And four, our primary differential diagnosis for antibiotic non-response is non-infectious mimicker, source control issue, or antibiotic failure. And these can be distinguished from one another by evaluating clinical course since starting antimicrobial therapy. So thanks for listening. Our next podcast will be a microbiology review. 